So we are looking at the question, um, does God owe you? Now, before we look at how the Apostle Paul creatively deals with this question, I want to look at the mindset that we have, that people have in our, in our culture, that basically says God owes you a bunch of stuff, good stuff. Um, I think many Americans think this. Um, you know, if you're a good member of society, you know, you work hard, you know, God owes you a great job, you know, great spouse, great marriage, wonderful kids, and a really nice house. And if you don't get those things, then you are somehow getting a bad deal. God is ripping you off. God isn't giving you what you deserve. And so people who think this way have a sense, a deep sense of entitlement. Um, and what, what I find interesting is entitlement is often pushed in our culture quite aggressively right. uh, all throughout the internet, on um, TV and everything. And I think much of the advice from self-help gurus and uh, quotes online uh, really push this assumption of entitlement that you all just, we all deserve better than what you're getting presently. I want to give you some just few examples online. These are, these are not like, these are just things you can read like kind of memes, kind of fashion, kind of things. You can look and see these. If you type in, you deserve better, you can get all these funny, really, you know, fortune cookie kind of quotes here. Um, so sometimes the only choice you need is the understanding that you deserve better. Now, isn't that special, huh? Right there. And uh, another one, this one's a little a little bit more uh, heavy-handed on the deserve end of things, but it says, you deserve someone who replies fast. Wow, okay. You deserve someone who never gets tired of your pointless stories. You deserve someone who will show their eagerness to talk to you every minute of the day. <sighs> Have mercy. <laughs> you deserve someone to make you feel like you actually matter. So apparently this person's ever heard of lowered expectations on Mad TV. Um, those are some pretty high and heavy-handed expectations right there, huh? Goodness gracious. And what is so ironic about these self-help quotes, I don't know if they help anybody, but they endorse this entitlement that, you know, you're really owed something special. You know, goodness gracious, you're good enough, you're smart, and doggone it. People like you, you, you got to have a special piece of meat here. It's got to be really special here, all right? But the, the ironic thing is that recent studies demonstrate that having this entitlement attitude that people so often have is actually very harmful to you, profoundly harmful. Messes up how you view and process life. And in the scientific America, and you know that's how it's legit, it's science, right? Entitled people are more likely to be angry at, at bad luck. This is by Alex Jones and... Emily uh, Zekek here, and uh, this is what they say in their studies. It says, in a series of studies, we found that people who have higher levels of psychological entitlement, who believe they deserve good things, actually felt victimized and angered when they experienced and remembered or imagined bad luck befalling them. Now, we know it's not luck, it's, a, you know, God's providence, but they're viewing events in their life, and they get angry. That's the point. And uh, there's more, there's tons of research you can find online that supports this. In a recent study uh, article based uh, called Psychological Entitlement Predicts Failure to Follow Instructions. Um, this is from Alexander H. Jones and the, and the same author, Emily, here. And so there's many studies that confirm this. It's overwhelming. Six studies examine the relationship between psychological entitlement and not following instructions. 
In study one, more entitled individuals were more likely to ignore instructions about how to format their responses. Studies two through four investigated the possible boundaries on the association between entitlement and ignoring instructions, just blowing them off. However, entitled people were more likely to ignore instructions even when following instructions was at a low cost to the self. Instructions were given in even less controlling ways, or even punishment was highly likely to result from failure to follow those instructions. So, you know, you go around thinking you deserve better. You know, you think I'm really, you know, something here. And so you can justify bending the rules because you're better. You're entitled to the greatest. So you, maybe the rules don't apply to you. You don't follow instructions. And all the while, while breaking the rules, because you're entitled, they don't apply to me. I'm something special here. All the while, you have a resentful, angry heart because you feel like you're getting ripped off. You're not getting what you deserve. And um, if you could just figure out by reading the scripture reading this morning, Paul in Romans 1 pretty much wrecks that notion of entitlement when he teaches that God doesn't owe us anything good. Rather, it is quite the opposite of that. He owes us just punishment according to this. And now that might seem kind of brutal. Just hang with me here for a second. That might seem kind of rough. We're going to look at why it's not brutal on God's part to do that. And why the gospel is a solution to this kind of question of, okay, how can I have value and feel significant and feel loved and cherished while at the same time realizing that I'm not entitled? The gospel provides a, a perfect solution to that puzzle and predicament that we, that we as Americans and all people have, frankly. Um, so let's kind of dig into God's word and see what God has for us today, uh, verse by verse. Romans 1.28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, so again, as if last time, there's, a, there's like a triad here of people not trusting and believing in God, unbelief producing various types of sin, and here Paul just throws everything at us in this final trifecta here. Um, unbelief produces this. That's the same theme throughout here. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And see, it even says in Romans 1, they weren't thankful to God. They were unthankful. They were angry at God. And, um, and so they, did not fit, they didn't want to acknowledge God. So they have this anger and entitlement and unbelief stewing in their hearts. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy. Who here has ever been jealous? Don't raise your hand. It's going to be everybody, right? You've been jealous. I'm jealous probably every day. You struggle with it. Murder, yeah, not so much. Um, I've never murdered anybody. Just, you know, it's like, well, I went to this church and the pastor told everybody he didn't murder. Like, I needed to know that, you know, but um, I don't know. I just feel like saying that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, but, you know, Jesus says, if you hate somebody, you murder in the heart. So there's some truth to this, right? Strife, you know, churches fight over the color of carpets, right? And church splits over ties and carpet. Deceit, you know. You know, they, that's, that's the earliest sin my children ever had, you know? So deceit right there. Um, we struggle with that. Maliciousness, they are gossips. It's like the church lady's favorite sin right here, you know? Isn't that special, right? <laughs> so slanderers, people say, you know, gossip is secret slander. So that's another angle on that. Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. Who hasn't boasted after they won a game? Any game. Could be a sports game video game. I've done it. We've all done it. Inventor of evil, disobedient to parents. Yeah, you've all kept that, right? 
No way. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree. So they know, people say, oh, well, they didn't know any better. Everybody, God made us in his image to know right from wrong. You don't get that kind of free hall pass. Oh, we didn't know any better. God made us in his image. We're his image bearers. We know right from wrong. And so because of the fact that we are made in his image, we do have intrinsic value, but we also know his righteous decree. We know God and we know his truth, his rules. And we, as Romans 1 says, suppress that truth and unrighteousness, hold down that truth. And so... These unbelievers, they know God's truth. They know God and they suppress it. And so they practice these things regularly in their lives, various things on the list. And so the, they deserve to die. Those who practice such things deserve to die. They not, only give a, uh, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So they're cheering on people that are doing things like this. And so, yeah, he says that people deserve to die here. Now, um, if you thought um, God was Barney, I just shattered that dream for you, didn't I? He's not, he's not Barney. He's not a sweet little baby bunny rabbit. That's not who God is. He's not a, a, um, a grandpa in the sky that spoils you rotten. It's not who God is. And so, uh, yeah, God is more like, as I like how C.S. Lewis puts it, uh, Jesus is more like a lion, like Aslan. That's why he has him as a lion, to, to show God's holiness. Um, and I love this quote from C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, Susan said, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? You know, because you don't want to go to a zoo and go behind the cage and pet the lions. You know, they're a little dicey there. And sh shall I feel nervous, rather nervous about meeting a lion safe? Said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. So God is holy. He isn't safe for sinners unless they're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But God is holy. He's not Barney or Mr. Potato Head or Mr. Rogers or any of these like nice little images we have that you know, make us feel good. No, he's, he, is, he is infinitely holy and just. The Greek word here for deserve is a Greek word axios. And that actually, according to most New Testament scholars, that indicates deserving or worthy of. That's the meaning of the Greek word. And so what they are saying is that people are worthy or deserving of, of death. Now, death here likely means spiritual, eternal, and also physical death as well, but mainly the spiritual element of it. And this is Paul's point here leading up to Romans 6, 23. We've all learned this verse maybe in Sunday school or maybe not, but it's very popular. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so wages here, you know, you're getting paid something. You probably deserve it, right? If you're getting paid something. And so the wages of sin is death. It's what we deserve. We, we, we work for it in a negative way. Now, some people have this, um, this misconception of death as it's used in the Bible. They kind of take like what atheists say about death and they kind of impose that in the Bible. Um, what I mean by that is like, you know, I, I had someone in my family say this who passed on. But they said, when I die, it's going to be the great lights out, right? And nothing's going to happen. There's no consciousness. And so oftentimes we see death and we impose that on the Bible, this kind of naturalistic, non-believing view that rejects God atheism, and we impose their view of death on the scriptures. But you see, death in, in the scriptures is used very differently than how a modern atheist would use it. Death uh, is describing a ruinous state. 
Death is describing a horrible condition, uh, a horrible spiritual condition that of course results in our physical death. Even after you're dead, you're still conscious, according to the Bible. Um, Look at John 5, 24. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but passes from death to life. So he's conscious. He's, he was dead spiritually. And then he passes to eternal life by trusting and believing in Jesus. Now, here's the thing is that if someone has... Um, Death. They are in a state of spiritual death and they continue on in that kind of vein. When they die, it gets much worse. There's a severe state. There's final judgment that occurs from them being in this, in this spiritual debased state. And you, you see this with Adam, right? When he, when he ate the tree, disobeyed God, when he rejected God for his life, he rejected God's plan for his life. And he says, you know, you're gonna surely die. But did, did Adam die that day? No, no, he continued to live on. He had kids, but the moment he had that fruit, he spiritually died immediately, and that eventually brought about, of course, his physical death. So spiritual death is in view here in Scripture, and so that's kind of the perspective here, and so that's what it likely means. So the Bible is teaching us here, yeah, that God doesn't owe you anything, but punishment, um, that is, that's tough. Now, I don't want you to interpret me saying like, okay, well, I guess I don't have to pay my taxes, you know, I owe some guy money. I don't have to pay him back, you know, because you know what? He, he's, he's owed death, so I don't have to pay him anything. I'm, I'm off the hook, right? Um, or maybe you can throw out the Constitution because it says that you have inalienable rights, you know, life, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are rights you have. So maybe you don't really have those rights because you deserve death. Well, that's not what it's saying, right? And by the way, this is not saying, oh, by the way, uh, the government should impose a death penalty on all people because we've all committed these sins, so I guess we all deserve the death penalty. It's not talking about that because people have misinterpreted. I've heard many Christians interpret this text to be saying, oh, well, all these people deserve to die and we've all committed these sins, so I guess we need to have like a universal death penalty. No, that's not what Paul is getting at here. He's not talking about people-to-people relationships. He's not talking about governments. He is talking about our relationship before God. Not talking about how government should run, that we should have some kind of bloodthirsty universal death penalty. It's not what God's word is getting at. Paul has a point here, and he's leading us to Jesus through the despair of our sin, and he's leading us to the gospel. He's not trying to give government rules here or something like this. And so, still, after saying all of that, eh, it's kind of kind of pretty harsh, you know, kind of escalates pretty quickly here, right? I mean, come on, you know, I mean, to say that people regularly commit these, even some small sins here in this list, that people that regularly practice those things, that those people deserve death. I mean, you're like, oh God, that's kind of heavy handed, man. I mean, that's messed up. Um, and yeah, people, people, especially the smaller sins, I think that's really rough that God would would punish somebody so severely for something that we all do. I mean, we all gossip. We all dishonor our parents. So like, man, people think like, goodness gracious, the punishment does not fit the crime here. That's really out of proportion. And so God is unjust because yeah, though God is not like Barney, he is still good. He is still just perfect and holy infinitely. And so how do we deal with this like seeming 
issue of the punishment does not fit the crime. And I, and I love what uh, philosopher and theologian Jonathan Edwards, he gave a really thoughtful response to this. And every time you say Jonathan Edwards, anybody who's like, you know, a millennial had to read Sinners in the Hands of Angry God, and that's all they ever think of him is that sermon. But actually, uh, many uh, historians would say he was the most brilliant mind that ever stepped foot on uh, America. He was so bright and thoughtful. He was a great philosopher. He had many great things to say. If you ever get a philosophy degree, I found that people study him all the time. Very smart and insightful. And what, what he said that was so interesting is that, is that what makes a sin worthy of eternal punishment is, is not so much the, the sin itself, but the nature of the person who is sinned against. The, the type of person you sin against, the type of thing you sin against. Um, and when we are doing something evil, who are we sinning against the most? Well, you just said it, yeah. I mean, the infinite God of the universe. And, you know, say, well, you know, if I steal money from you and I punch you in the face, you know, I'm mostly sinning against you, right? I mean, but the thing is, I'm a sinner. I sin every day. We all sin every day. We're all sinners. And so you're harming another sinner and someone who messes up. And so, yeah, and by the way, love, love your neighbor as yourself and thou shalt not steal. That doesn't come from me. Those are not my, not my rules. That comes from God. And so the person who is being sinned against here is not me, another sinner, but in fact, the, the, the nature, the infinite holy nature of God. And when you perform any evil act in God's creation, it's God's universe that he created, and you sin against his law, you are sinning against this infinitely holy being that created the universe, and who the book of Habakkuk says, eyes are so, so pure, so infinitely pure and great that he can't even look upon sin. That's how immensely just and beautiful this God is. And so those small sins, they, they, might, they may not seem like they're a big deal to you. They may seem relatively small to you um, because you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. We're kind of like swimming in sin. We're, we all mess up. And so, but we don't realize how that, how that is to an infinitely holy God, a pure God. I guess an analogy, um, I'm doing many weddings this year. It's like after COVID, everyone's getting married, you know, it's crazy. Um, but, uh, you know, we all know of, uh, you know, weddings can be a lot of pressure, you know, especially the weeks leading up to a wedding, a lot of things happen, you know. It's that kind of go time. People do a lot of life evaluations then. Um, and, you know, the bride is really concerned about her wedding dress, right? If it's a good looking dress. Um, well, my, my wife was actually pretty easy on that. I'm going to give her a free pass on that. So she was pretty easy on the wedding dress. But I've heard of many stories where the bride gets kind of, you know, intense about the wedding dress. Now, there could be a small little blemish on that wedding dress that no one else can see. But you think that bride's gonna see it? Oh yeah, she's gonna see it. Especially if she's a bridezilla, right? <laughs> she's gonna be in If there's any a slight blemish, she will see it because that's what she's she's attuned to. Because she she is so valuing the purity of the dress, the beauty of the dress. That if there's anything wrong with it, she will pick it out. You know, Joe Schmo sitting on the pew, he may not pick it out, but she will. And that's how God is with our sin because he is so pure. I love how R.C. Sproul famously put it, every sin against God, an infinite holy God, is a cosmic treason. And this treason is first and foremost against God himself. Um, King David can put it well in Psalm 51.5, against you and you only 
Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments? Now, David said this likely after the murder of Uriah the Hittite in the affair he had with Bathsheba. I mean, that's pretty messed up, right? And yet David stresses here poetically, he, he, he proves a point here saying, the, the sin that I committed the most egregiously again, though I murdered a man and committed adultery, the most egregious sin I committed here is against God. That is the person who has been most sinned against. It is an infinitely grave cosmic treason he has committed. And so, yeah, to Jonathan Edwards' point, it matters not just the nature of the sin, but the nature of the person who is sinned against. Um, you go into a car lot and you take out, you know, I don't have my keys, I threw it down in the office. Um, but you have like, your, your key out, you go to, um, a, um, I don't know, a junkyard, take your key, you scratch against one of the cars. I mean, you could probably escape without anybody knowing. You know those char- cars at junkyards? They're junk. That's why it's called a junkyard, right? So you're, you're keying up that car. You're not going to go to prison for that. Um, you, no one's going to care. It's just a car in a junkyard. Now, you, you go to a, a, um, a used car sells a lot, you know, and you, you know, um, you take your key and you slide against one of those cars. You get a big old mark on one of those cars. You know, you're probably paying some money. You think, God's going to yell at you. You know, the, the, the guys at the car lot are going to yell at you. Um, but if you go into a fancy car lot and you scratch a Rolls, Rolls Royce boat tail, which, by the way, I looked it up, that goes for $28 million. Like, who has that money? <laughs> $28 million. It looks kind of weird, actually, too. I looked it up online. They have like a rating of all the cars in there for, for how much they cost. And the ones before that were actually cooler, but man, sometimes you don't get what you pay for. You know, the other cars were cooler. But yeah, $28 million. And if you scratch that car, you take out the, your key and just scratch along there, have a good old time, you're probably going to jail. Okay? Like that's, you, your punishment's definitely gonna be increased because of the value that you, uh, of the thing you damaged, the thing you've sinned against, the value has increased, so the punishment has increased. The same thing applies to um, people in positions. You're you know, slap some guy at a bar, you know, probably nothing's gonna happen to you, right? You know, uh, but if you punch or slap the President of the United States in the face, you're probably going to jail, okay? And that is because in both cases, the position of the person matters. The value of the thing determines the punishment. Now, what is God's value? Is it finite or is it infinite? It's infinite. So God's, God's value is infinite and immeasurable. And so God's position, he is the greatest possible being. There's nothing greater than God. And so there's nothing that could even be thought of greater than God. And so when you sin against an infinite being, this was Edward's point, you deserve an infinite punishment. If you sin against the greatest being, you at least deserve a great punishment. So when you carefully reflect upon this, Paul's teaching in Romans 1, though at first it kind of was like, wow, that's a little heavy-handed there, Paul. It seems kind of harsh. But when you think about it, it becomes fitting and reasonable given who God is. Now, I mean, like, I don't expect you guys to all be like Spock from like Star Trek and think, boop, boop, boop. okay, that sounds good computing. You know, it's still kind of rough, right? I mean, even though I did all that stuff, it's still pretty rough. And so there's, there is a deep emotional and psychological concern here with this biblical teaching um, that people deserve death. That can people say, gosh, that's really like so much for project self-esteem, right? That's really depressing, Nate. That's really like messed up. I mean, that's got to mess with your self-image, you know? And, you know, if Paul was just saying that, just, just to be like, I don't know, kind of like a nasty person, you know, just like, hey, you know, 
y'all deserve to die. You know, if you were to do that, like, and just and walk off laughing, then yeah, that'd be kind of messed up. It's like, come on, man, you know? But he's going somewhere with this. And that isn't the whole story, so hold on a bit. We're gonna go to the whole story, which is you know, the rest of it, which Paul's leading to, which is that Jesus has come to save us from that death. He's come to save us from hell, to give us eternal life and relationship with him. But in, in order for that good news to really hit home and to impact us, we gotta hear the bad news first. Because when you hear bad news and then it's followed by the best news ever that solves that problem, it's like, it's like a weight off your shoulder. It's a great feeling. And so, um, and so he gives us this good news so that we can understand what a, what a mess we are, but at the same time, show us the value we have in Christ and strip away that entitlement. So here's the problem with entitlement and entitlement-based models. Um, if you base your identity and your worth in life on working hard or even being good a little or successful, then that will always breed in your heart arrogance, entitlement, and, you know, smugness. You know, the kind of people look down on everybody, you know? It's like, oh, well, you know, they don't work as hard as I do. You know, kind of holier than thou. Oh, well, I work so hard and those people over there, you know? Or that person is not as nice as I am, not as smart as I am. And so there is this kind of condescending, self-righteous arrogance that comes with um, entitlement. Oh, I could never do that. They could never do what I do. I do the best job at everything. They just, they, th those people over there obviously lack the skills and discipline that I possess. I'm just so wonderful. Oh, that person, not as moral as I am. They are such a mess. Oh, that person, bless his heart. He's such a mess, you know? I'm just a wonderful person, you know? Um, and, and then that gets to thinking like this. Oh, well, I deserve a bigger house than that guy. I work harder. Um, I, I take care of my kids. Um, that guy cheats on his wife. Like, why does he have a bigger house than me? I deserve way better than that guy, you know? And so that's what happens, is that you become a bitter, jealous person. You become the type of person who always comes with a perspective that you are getting ripped off in life. And so you, you act angry. You take it out on others. You think you're entitled to do other immoral things. After all, you've worked hard and you've been so good. And so, you know, you deserve to take a little bit off the top, you know? Take things into your own hands, you know, because obviously you're getting the short end of the deal. So it's time for you to take matters into your own hands and, you know, bend the rules a little bit, you know, make it fair for you. And you know, so this, this view of entitlement that you deserve better brings about bitterness and immorality. And if you go to the other extreme and you just like sit with the fact that you think you're an awful person, then you're not getting better and there's no way to help yourself. Then you slip into moral despair and depression. And that's not where Paul's leaving us this morning. And then many folks who, who slip into moral despair because they feel like, I'm not that good. I'm really messed up. Um, they think, well, you know, Nate, I can't come to a church. If I come into your church, the church is going to burn down. I haven't stepped, you know, I haven't darkened the, the, the door of a church in years, and I'm way too far gone. So it leads to just sort of like immorality because, because they feel such moral despair for failing so much. So any works-based system of salvation is going to create two things. Either entitlement, oh, I'm better than that person. Oh, that person's can't compare to me. Or this, this, this moral despair and hopelessness in people. And what people miss here is that Christianity provides the best, provides the most brilliant solution to this problem. And as we can see from Romans 1 here, we can't be entitled because we all deserve to die, you know. 
Um, we all deserve death and hell. But Christianity has good news that, that takes care of the, the issue. It says, though we are messed up, Jesus has come to save us, to give us his perfect righteousness, to give us his merit, and that we find complete and total value, not in our righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There's nothing I have done to earn or achieve that righteousness. It's all done by Christ and Christ alone. And so we can never be prideful, arrogant, or smug, or self Oh, people are just, all these people are below me kind of thing. We can't be like that because what we really deserve is hell. But instead of hell, we get grace and love and mercy. We get the perfect satisfaction and obedience of Jesus Christ who satisfied the justice of God on the cross for us. And so this gospel of Jesus Christ is amazing because it says, Jesus, because of his work, you are forever loved valued and cherished and affirmed in his righteousness. And that's not based on anything you've done. You can't brag about it. You can never shake your fist at God and say, God, you owe me this. I deserve this. You can never do that. Because from the Christian perspective, we deserve the exact opposite of that. So the gospel gives us simultaneously value without entitlement in the most unique way ever in human history. So that's why every you know, Christian, you can ask them, how are you doing? Every Christian can say, better than I deserve. Amen. And when you think about it from that gospel vantage point, it brings transformation to how you view everything. It changes the way you look at everything. When you view everything in life as a gift from God's grace, it changes your entire perspective and attitude. Um, so, I mean, we all go through this. Something's in your life at some point is going to go terribly bad and wrong for you. Sorry, I hate, you know, you know, thought this was going to be a pick-me-up, but <laughs> at some point in your life, things are really going to hit the fan there, right? You lose your job. You're in financial trouble. Your spouse leaves you. You know, you become bankrupt. All these things happen to you. And so the gospel, what it does in these circumstances, it does not cultivate bitterness and anger towards God in your heart. Because not only are you doing better than you deserve, you know the truth that because of the work of Jesus Christ, that God loves you and is with you no matter what through those trials. He can't stop loving you because for him to stop loving you would be him to stop loving his son because you are clothed in the righteousness of his son. And so the gospel message is that we are far more broken, messed up, and screwed up than we could ever imagine, but we are far more cherished, loved, and accepted than we can ever dream or hope or imagine. That is how deep God's love is for us. And so when difficult things happen to us, know that God loves you, and he is working out all things for your good, for your character, for your final, eternal good. Because of the gospel, whatever happens in the end is because of God's kindness goodness and grace to you. He is not punishing you. Even though you deserve it, God's never punishing you. If you trust in Jesus, God is never going to punish you because he already punished Jesus in your place. Because Christ took the punishment which you deserve and he didn't deserve. And so if you trust in God, he is working out things for your betterment. And so everything in your life is working out for that. You could be thankful for everything that happens. You can have gratitude for everything that happens. We don't deserve anything good, but yet God gives us tons of wonderful things. We are so blessed here in America, aren't we? We've got plenty of food and water and shelter. 
We have friendships. Many, in the peop- many people don't have those things. We don't think about that. All the, the blessings we get from God. We take it for granted. We think we deserve certain things here in America, don't we? So instead of being smug and resentful, the gospel message makes us thankful and full of gratitude, a life filled of gratitude and joy towards God, thanking him for everything good in our lives, even a small sip of water. And so every person can say, no matter how much pain you are facing in your life, no matter how much struggling you're going through this morning, every person can still say that God is good to me. And when people see that difference in your life, in your struggles, in your pain, and how Christ and the gospel has changed your life, they, wanna, they want, if people see the grace and the joy and the gratitude in your life, they're gonna want that. And so that becomes a evangelistic beacon and light for others to come and join you in, in receiving the grace of Jesus Christ so that they can be stripped of their entitlement and be added with the joy of the gospel and knowing the one true God, knowing Jesus Christ. And that is why the gospel means good news because it gives us something to be profoundly thankful over rather than smug and self-righteous over. So the gospel is that Jesus took death and hell on the cross so that you'd never have to go through that. He loves you. He took the greatest, that infinite punishment, that greatest punishment we were talking about earlier that we all deserve, he took that for you. And so if you want this righteousness, you want that perfect life given to you, you want that love and affirmation from God, and you haven't done so already, I'd ask you to trust, believe, and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. It will change your life. It will change how you view everything, not through a lens of resentment, but a lens of gratitude and thankfulness. And for those believers this morning, um, we need to be reminded of the gospel every Sunday. We need to be reminded of what we really deserve and how Jesus took what we deserve because he didn't deserve it so that we can have eternal life. We need to be reminded of that over and over and over again. And so this is why Paul's not writing to God-hating atheists in Romans. He's writing to believers because believers, we forget, you know, we get smoked sometimes. We think, oh, you know, I'm getting ripped off in life. Or what's happening here in life? And we forget that, that we are always doing better than we deserve. And we always have God's love and mercy in our life. And see, when we, when we go over this message over and over again, that we deserve death and hell, but Jesus took it for us and we will never get that. We will only get grace upon grace and eternal life. When we realize that, when we go deeper and deeper into the gospel, we have deeper joy and thanksgiving and our lives transform all the more. Realizing all the more that every day that we live, every second we, we breathe, that's a gift. The air you're breathing in, it's a gift from God. You've never deserved it. And Jesus has accomplished everything for you. And you see, hearing that message regularly and constantly will always keep us from being smug, entitled, and self-righteous. Hearing that message will bring life-giving love and joy to, our, to, to knowing Jesus better and those around us because of his work, not because of ours, because of Jesus. Let us pray.